I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is women, and today's show is part two, talking about that theme. For part one, last week, I was in conversation with Nebraska's First Lady, Suzanne Shaw. This week, joining me in conversation are Diana Martinez, Ashley Spivey, and Megan Hunt. Ashley Spivey was born and raised in the heart of North Omaha in Nebraska. She attended Jackson State University on a volleyball scholarship for her bachelor's degree in communications, then attended University of Texas at Arlington for her master's in urban social planning. Ashley has spent the last decade of her professional career working in nonprofit spaces from workforce development to college access. She launched her brand, A Spivey, in 2017, which allows her to facilitate both conversations and action planning for organizations, communities, and individuals around inclusion and equity frameworks. Ashley is the mother of a handsome three-year-old, Nazir, and guardian to her sister, Yasmin. Thanks for being here. A sixth-generation Nebraskan and mother to a seventh, Megan Hunt is a serial entrepreneur and currently is the owner of Hello Holiday, a community-facing boutique and e-commerce company supporting independent fashion designers and best known for its Girls Support Girls messaging and fundraising collaborations with local nonprofit organizations. Megan is the founder of the nonprofit Safe Space Nebraska, an organization that works to end harassment in Omaha's bars and nightlife scene. Megan is also running for the Nebraska legislature in Omaha's District 8. Hello, Megan. Hi, Stuart. Thank you. Diana Martinez has a PhD in film and media studies from the University of Oregon, where she studied gender and sexism in the media industry. She has written for several publications on this topic, including Women in Hollywood, Dilaton Army, IndieWire, Slate, and The Atlantic. Diana is currently the education director of Filmstreams, Omaha's only nonprofit art house cinema. Hello, Diana. Hi, Stuart. If I say the theme of the show is women, what comes to your mind? For me, I think about my experience as a woman and what that looks like being defined. And so it's a very intersectional experience with all my identities layered. So it's not just about my gender, me identifying as a cis woman, but being black, being young, being a single mom where I grew up. And it really creates my experience of womanhood that's defined by me and owned by me versus what womanhood may mean to someone else or being a woman to someone else. When I, when I think of womanhood, I think of... The collective population from which life springs. And I also think, um, I don't know, I, I think that everything revolves around women. I think that men are obsessed with women. I think that women are obsessed with women. I think that children need women. And so um, when I think about my identity as a woman, I like to be very focused on how we, how we help ourselves and support ourselves and lift each other up and um, not really allow all these other um, groups of people, I guess, to like define what that is for us. And, you know, I, we all have a lot of intersections of identity for sure. Um, I'm white and I'm queer and I am a business owner and a single mother. And um, all of those things definitely inform my experience as a woman. And I agree with you, Ashley, that having conversations about where we come from is probably like, in my experience, the best way that I've received support from people, you know, both men and women, and how I seek to keep improving my ability to re relate to other women who I really care so much about. Yeah, when um, you approached me with this topic, I think the first thing I thought was like, yes, like that, This, you know, women, um, I think as, uh, as Megan and Ashley pointed out, is like kind of such a loaded 
term and the way that it involves so many different identities and and all the different kinds of politics that it brings up. So for me, just um, I don't the the word woman is less associated with myself actually than for me, this like category that I've been dealing with in my work for the last seven years and all of the different ways that people deploy it in the media and politics, like for, for their own gain or for their own um, kind of like positioning in the world. So for me, like as an abstract category, I think woman is really interesting because it's, it's so many people hold on to it and are so invested in it and rightly so, but it's um, so different of a definition for everyone. How do you encounter that, this commodification of the issues that perhaps you think are relevant to women? I have some thoughts on that. One thing that I've always really believed is that sometimes there's always somebody hearing a message for the very first time. And it's a shame that in our society that often has to come from the media where it's being designed and written and um, completely creative directed to make money and typically to make money for white men, you know, who run these companies by and large. The older, the older you get, you know, you're a young girl and you're getting these messages about femininity and what it means to be a woman. And a lot of it's very negative and a, a lot of it often doesn't, you know, really jive with your experience and what you, um, how you want to express your womanhood or your femininity as a young girl. And then maybe you see something like a Dove ad for the first time and it does make you feel a little bit better about that. But at the same time, we have to have like a lot of media literacy so that when we see that, we know what we're getting. And I don't think that there's enough of that for young girls. Um, but I do think that the pro-social outcomes of those things, sometimes it doesn't matter the channel it comes from, as long as someone's hearing it for the first time and it's making a difference to them in their life. But we do have to be really critical of the point of the advertising and the point of the media and um, kind of guard against being influenced by that too much. I agree, Megan, that sometimes people hear it for the first time and it's a light bulb and they can see themselves and it's affirming. But I think that media does not do a good job of stratifying that. And so with the Dove ad, you know, it's about being feminine. Well, you can be a woman and be more masculine of center as well. So where do we see those ads of more masculine of center women represented in that space? Um, and again, for me, my womanhood is always tied to my blackness. Like it doesn't separate ever. And so um, my very first ad that I actually like was by um, Procter & Gamble. So I was a part of this um, NABJ, the National Association of Black Journalists in college, and we have our large conference every year, and Procter & Gamble actually launched my Black is Beautiful campaign. So this is forever ago. I won't even say how long ago because it makes me feel old. Um, and that was the first time that I've ever seen like a major media company tailor something to blackness that then went into other um, identities as well. And so with that, I think People are starting to get behind that and making sure that they do have more representation. But then there's also issues in who decides what's represented. So I have natural hair. So when they have these Dove campaigns, they have hair that's deemed good hair. So it doesn't look kinky and curly like my hair. It looks like someone else's hair that's more similar and assimilated to white hair. And so, again, I think people have good intentions, but I don't know if enough voices are at the table to really help representation at all levels and to really meet that spectrum to say women, woman, womanhood, whatever, are all of these things and none of these things and hear how you find yourself. 
in mainstream media and especially advertising, when you show a woman looking quote unquote natural, you know, and for, for white women, like on, on an ad that means no makeup typically, or like very natural looking makeup. And we really have to go farther than that. And like, not just pat media companies on the back. I mean, for so long, like people of color, people of color have always been a market for like Hollywood movies, for shampoo, like for anything. Right. But for a long time, they've been ignored in favor of a white consumer as if Latinos or um, black people or Asian Americans like they they don't consume products. And so even though um, a lot of these companies do missteps, not just in their like faux feminism. Right. But like that Pepsi commercial with Kendall Jenner or whatever. It's also important that companies do realize that they need to start catering to other audiences. Sometimes that is in a stereotypical way, but I think um, if Profit Motive is going to create a more diverse Hollywood landscape or a more diverse um, representation on billboards, then maybe that's okay. I mean, you can't escape it because of our economy structure. I mean, given that we're a capitalist economy and the structure of it, you're never going to escape that in general. And I think you're right. It does help with affirmations and representation. And I think some people are motivated by that dollar amount or they want to reach like this LGBTQ plus has this much buying power. We need to make sure we tailor it to that, you know, and and so they decide to do that. Um, But I do think that there are some pro-social changes with that because now people can see themselves. So the little kid that is just coming out or the little girl who has kinky hair, whatever the case may be, can now see herself or whomever on this larger platform and say, wow, this is me. I can see myself. I can do these things and start to reimagine who they are. And so it's kind of like that weird balance of playing devil's advocate. Do I critique it or support it or do whatever with it? Yeah, it's really easy to write off advertisement as just capitalism, right? But it matters because that's what people see. So in my company, we have tried to do a big focus on sizing. And so we're selling, you know, small sizes, but we're also selling up to 4X. And in the past five years, we've done a lot of work with designers to kind of convince them that we want representation for these sizes. So anyway, on the design side, that usually just means more money. Like it's going to cost us more money because we have to grade these patterns up. We have to buy more material. We have to like order more quantity because it's going to cost so much to manufacture. So there's all these like aspects of the, you know, economic um, incentive to serve a certain population. So as a company, as a business owner, then when I go to investors who are mostly male, mostly white, and I tell them, you know, why we want funding so we can like bring this, um, you know, more service and and more options to this population of plus size women, um, we have to make a financial argument. We have to say like, well, this is the buying power that plus size women have. This is how much the market is ignoring them. And so this is the space that we have to make profit. And it really sucks that that's the type of argument you have to make because the argument should always be, you know, whether it's for representation in clothing or advertising or whatever, well, these are humans. These are people who deserve to be represented. And these are people who are not being served by our society. And, but unfortunately you always have to make a monetary argument, especially when the people who have the money and the people who have the influence to change anything are the ones who are like not affected at all. 
sometimes I feel like you compromise yourself and your values in order to move that objective forward because you know that that's important to get that person represented or to be able to service them. And so sometimes it's hard to balance that as well. And that's a criticism that we've taken a lot as a company. It's like on one side, it's so great that you guys are doing so much work with designers and that you're finding funding and you're really focused on growing this market and serving this community. And on the other hand, it really sucks that you're compromising and you're selling out to the man and you're taking (laughs) advantage of, you know, plus size women. You just want their Mm -hmm. money. And it's like, okay, well, like maybe both are kind of true. You know what I mean? But at the same time, it's, it's a business that supports independent designers who are women. A lot of them are, you know, women of color. A lot of them are women in very different socioeconomic positions. And then of course my own company employs like a lot of different types of women and I'm a single mother. So it's, it's just like, where does the argument about money end? It's like, we all need to be supported. And like, isn't it great that we're trying to do it in the most ethical way possible? It doesn't mean right. it's not problematic. It doesn't mean that we can't improve. This economic imperative isn't one that just businesses follow. Like that's the way that women have to rationalize um, Planned Parenthood being funded, right? And that, you know, more women are going to be able to get cancer treatments will be more cost effective because the argument that this is good for women, especially um, women from a low socioeconomic status, especially women of color, like that altruistic kind of mandate is not something that politicians tend to hear, right? They also are driven by the bottom line. And if uh, more women are going to be served by, you know, having certain measures or bills passed, then that's probably what's gonna what's gonna work right what's gonna convince them to put their to put their vote behind it they also make decisions based on what they think women should and shouldn't be doing and so this ideal of a woman how we should act in society the roles that we play our abilities or inabilities they have this vision or these preconceived notions about what a woman is and what that looks like and that also drives their decision making from a policy standpoint from a business standpoint I mean all of these other areas which is also something that I feel like we have to combat Let's just hear this clip. The Uber board was meeting around the time of the investigation into sexual harassment of the company and board member Ariana Huffington referred to having more women on the board, to which fellow board member David Bonderman made a sexist retort. So let's play a clip that features that exchange, but drawn from Trevor Noah's reaction to it on The Daily Show in June. 
Uber has not exactly been getting a five-star rating recently. Uh, they've been dealing for months with accusations of sexual harassment and discrimination. Uber had a staff meeting to discuss the need to change its culture and to add a second woman to its board of directors. Good ideas. Now, at the very moment when you're talking about sexism, what's the one thing a dude should definitely not make a joke about? Listen to this astonishing exchange obtained by Yahoo at a staff meeting between Uber board members Ariana Huffington and David Bonderman. There is a lot of data that shows that when there is one woman on the board, it's much more likely that there will be a second woman on the board. Actually, what it shows is it's much likely to be more talking. Oh, you can tell this guy works for Uber because he does not know when to shut up. <laughs> Seriously, how stupid is he? The sexist insult is bad enough, but interrupting a woman who is talking about sexism to make a sexist insult. That's just something we can poke fun at, we can laugh, and it's on tape. Uh, it's a very high profile example, but I think it speaks to this issue about, yes, women may have a voice, but where is it, is it listened to? Um, in what ways are they silenced in, in places where uh, power and decisions are made? I'm just wondering if this sounds familiar to you, and in what way do we redress the balance where um, women's voices are respected in these different places, whether social, workplace, or in, in our elected halls of office? Um, so that's typical for me. For me, it goes back to being an, an equity and inclusion issue. I think until people that actually um, hold the power and access really look at how they can champion and advocate for it, it doesn't make a difference. I mean, I know the question was, right, like, how do how do we mitigate this happening to women when there are men in power? But one of the ways to do that is to have more women in power. So in Hollywood and in business, it's been shown that when there's a woman at the helm, there's more women being employed and there's more women in positions of power. So, you know, women are actually likely to help each other out and help combat these um, spaces with like, you know, sexism and misogyny. Yeah. So it's not just an issue, um, you know, where like, yeah, men can say these, you know, kind of funny sexist comments. But um, I think what's what's more disturbing is the way that this is embedded within um, a kind of business culture and power culture that both men and women in positions of power have these kind of biases towards um, what they see as like feminine weaknesses. When a man like that says something like that, he knows he's not going to get redressed. And, mm -hmm. and when it happens, it's, you know, then the B word comes out and then it's like, well, this is why women are this way. And yeah. mm -hmm. it, it reinforces a stereotype. But I think that a lot of women who are in positions of power, they have this misconception that there's only so much success to go around. Like success is a pie and it's all going to get eaten up. And so they have to hoard it away from other women and other people who are competing for the success. And that is really wrong. And I think that women have got to champion other women. And it takes a lot of practice, especially across intersections of identity. You know, speaking as a white woman, I really am a little bit sensitive about putting my experience onto somebody else and like thinking that I understand what they're going through or that we have the same goals. And I'm trying to be better at asking them about that instead of assuming based on my experience. I've done board service for an organization and our board was extremely white and it was all women. Um, there was like one man on there who's gay and it's, you know, it's, it's what we work with. But um, we had somebody raise the issue finally when we were talking about membership that we've really got to talk more about equity and talk more about representation because the answer to how do we get more inclusion isn't like, okay, well, do you know any black people? Mm -hmm. Because that's, that's not answering the question and that's not actually bringing people, you know, 
onto the platform. It's just handing favors out to people who you already know. And that's a place to start, I guess. But it's kind of like what we were saying with the Dove ads. It's like, okay, well, you've met like the literal bare minimum of what you need to do. And we need to think beyond that and think bigger for equity and inclusion. And that's something that I'm still learning a lot about. Sometimes there's not enough pie for everybody. And I think the system allows for it to be that way. Again, in cross identities, you see that a lot in communities of color, low income communities that if you can get out, there's there are only going to allow so many people to get out because it's about um, equality for them, not equity, right? So if I'm a white person, white male in power, and I need to give up 10 of my 20 bits of power to make sure that this woman can have it, this woman of color, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to say, well, you can work hard like I did, or you can take this other avenue. So it's really about equity of saying that I need to give up some of what I have um, to make sure that there's room for everybody else. And it might not be the same, it might not be equal, but I'm okay with that because like I get my soul back, right? Without a like culture change, like those um, women or people of color that you hired, if they still are in a hostile work environment, You're right, then they're staying. just a token. Like they're not staying, right? That's right. why retention is sometimes an issue as well. Is that you know it's it's really easy to get there, but when you're making sexist comments, you know, in the board, right, then right. it's really hard to feel as if you are welcome. And then that's what makes them say, well, we can never find women. Right. We can never find women to serve on the board. It's like, well, maybe all the women are talking to each other about what an asshole you are. <laughs> yeah. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. voices and the capacity for making decisions um, by women become more manifest. And so what I want to do uh, is talk about getting women not just into the boardroom, but, but also into elected office. Before we get there, what I want to do is play a clip uh, from the HBO show Veep, which uh, portrays Julia Louis-Dreyfus, first as a vice president, uh, who's then elevated to president when the uh, current president steps down. And in this clip, it's drawn from season three, episode two, she's on the campaign trail for the presidential election when the issue of abortion comes up and her aide suggests she reference her gender. So let's listen just to that clip. 
actually wants to know if you've changed your stance on abortion, R.E. Huh. Yeah. So you could say, as a woman, I believe No, that no, 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 no. I can't identify myself as a woman. People can't know that. Men hate that. And women who hate women hate that, which I believe is most women. Don't you agree with that, Yes, Amy? and ma'am, we should really uh, bag this up and take it back to D.C. Yeah. Good idea. So it's obviously a great show. I, I think in just maybe 30 seconds, that clip raises so many issues about, um, I, I think you, you've all been talking about how uh, women do and can and should support each other. But I also think that perhaps that's not always prevalent because maybe this pie is perceived to be just limited and, and that conjures maybe some of, some of um, the, the worst in us, I don't know. And then it also raises the issue of being empowered. What about women stepping into positions of power, taking that power, not having it handed to them? Well, it's really difficult, right? We just saw this in the last election with Hillary Clinton. I mean, Hillary Clinton herself has, you know, a lot of, you know, maybe political issues, especially for kind of like socialist feminists as to why, you know, they didn't want to vote for her, support her. But I think just the way that people talk about women in power um, makes you think twice about whether or not you want to be that person, right? So, you know, her her voice is too um, shrill, right? The way that she dresses, she's too dowdy, and then she's too, like, perfectionist. Uh, the way that her hair looks. Like, there's all these kind of superficial reasons why people critiqued Hillary Clinton just on that surface, let alone all of her, her issues with her husband and all, like, there are so many things thrown at women in power that to be under that kind of scrutiny and to have to kind of stand uh, not just for your own issues or the Democratic Party's platforms, but to somehow also have to within you encompass the mission of all women everywhere in the entire country like Like that. Yeah, like that is very, very difficult. Yeah, I totally agree. So what I was thinking about from that clip is like like two things. So I'll keep it short. Um, Is first, like, what rules are we playing by? Right. So like she's talking. I mean, so it's like funny, but I mean, it's true. So whose rules are we playing by? Like who decides these rules? And it's so exhausting to have to operate within them. So, again, because my womanhood is centered in my blackness, I think about like when I go into work, like I think about what my hair looks like. I, I read emails four times before I send them. I watch my tone. You know, I'm, I'm doing all of these things to make sure that I'm meeting people's perceived expectations or expectations that are put on me. And it gets so exhausting. And so people like then, especially women, decide like, I'm not going to do that. Like I, And I think that's what deters a lot of women for holding certain positions or for advancing their c- career in a certain ways because they don't want to have to cover all day at work. They don't want to have to do some of these things. Um, And I also think that there should be a conversation of like, what does it mean to be a woman and and who defines that narrative? So we're talking a lot about like women in the workplace and having power. But what if I don't want to do that? What if I want to be just a mom? What if I want to just do this or just do that? And I feel like women critique other women or we have this external critique on you should be able to be superwoman, do all these things. Why don't you have kids by this age? Why aren't you married? Oh, you're a lesbian. Well, what happened to you? I mean, all of these things. And so I think that it's so complex and it's not just an answer for each. And we don't really explore what everyone's experience is. Um, And lastly, I think that um, especially with like the feminist movement, we should also take a critical lens to look at what the feminist movement was truly rooted in, how that was exclusionary for a lot of people. And now a lot of women are moving to this womanist stance. What does that mean and how does that 
um, cut out a lot of women. Like the other day I was walking through the mall and it was like a, a pink kitty hat that you put on. And then it said something like, I'm a woman or like hear me war or something. But like, what if you are not a cis woman or what if pink doesn't stand for you? And what if you're more, I mean, so I think again, we're, we're trying to be really progressive, quote unquote, and do all of these things. But I feel like a lot of people that are making these decisions and creating these movements have no clue, like have no clue the different voices in their community, what it looks like and how to truly represent them and come together for a cohesive movement that really pushes women, whatever that looks like forward. I think, I think it just, what you're saying, it kind of speaks to our need for some kind of community cohesiveness, especially in today's political climate. And for a lot of people after Trump's election, that was maybe the first time for them that they felt really victimized by the system. Which is crazy. Like, that's absolutely ridiculous. Like with the march, when um, all the women wanted all these other different types of women to march with them. And it's like, well, where were you when it was right. a Black Lives Matter march? Right. Or for the Dakota Access Pipe? I mean, like all of these things, but now because it affects you in your privilege and position, now I have to get on board. Right. Even saying womanhood, like like you said, Ashley, it's, we experience womanhood in different ways. In politics, to go back to that Veep quote, which which I thought is so funny because it's something that I relate to a lot. And I, I am a little bit new to politics officially, but I've been a very political person my whole life. And I've done a lot of speaking and I've done a lot of... Um, you know, leadership in business as well, which is often very political. And I relate to that so much. It's like, I can't come from this as a woman. You can't say as a woman, I don't want them to think of me as a woman. You know, that does me no favors. That adds no value to what I'm saying. And that is absolutely my experience. And I've even worked with speechwriters in the past two or three years where I'm having them take out of my speech references to my identity. So like, we can't talk about that. We can't talk about being an assault survivor. We can't talk about being queer. We can't talk about, you know, these experiences that are very formative for people um, because you also don't want to be, um, you don't want to sound like a victim. You want to sound strong and you want to sound like you can overcome things. And um, so when she, just that short quote that we listened to about like, well, I can't identify that way. Nobody likes that. I completely feel where she's coming from on that. Well, and it how sucks. Unfortunate is that in order to feel strong, you feel like you have to erase your identity in these mm-hmm. spaces to be able to connect with people and for them to see your human nature, to see your strengths and to see what you can do within the space that you want to work. I mean, like that's the issue. Because these things are perceived as weak. Right. I mean, and that's so unfortunate that it that's is. the case. It absolutely is. And it's unfortunate that it's the case because like half the population is that, right? So it's, it's not, you know, like a small minority <laughs> of people like it's you know if you can't identify as a woman yeah it's like and when we and when we identify it as a weakness we're also associating that with shame which is which is very heavy and very wrong because you know a lot of these things I mentioned you know sexuality um race um exposure to violence all of these things are nothing to be ashamed of and it's nothing to hide but again it comes down to outcomes whether it's economic or social or whatever and when you talk about your identities in terms of that, you don't get good outcomes. And so that makes people change their minds about what to say. Um, as Audrey Lord said, like you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's the tools, master's. right? So like how long are we going to wait for the, these people in power to change for us or to give us what we feel like we need and deserve? We have to start really finessing it to be what we want and create our own space. Let's see how we fit together and how we can really work together to create um, change, but don't just keep putting these things in binary spaces. And definitely 
as you mentioned, Diana, don't have that like savior syndrome. And I feel like that comes a lot when you see race mixed with gender and you're talking about that intersectionality, it becomes um, a savior complex of let me go help these people over here that can't do it for themselves. And now I've done these great things and now I'm super progressive and I've done my part and I can feel good about myself when I sleep. And it's like, no. We've been we've been having these issues for a long time outside of Trump. Like this is not new. Yeah. So let's not pretend like this is like now that you have heartache, mm-hmm. you want to have all this empathy for you. And it's like, no, yeah. we've been experiencing this for hundreds of years. Yeah, Welcome. I mean, I think within like small community spaces, it can get you know, really difficult to be kind of more global in your thinking. Like one of the criticisms against Hillary Clinton, right, is that like she was running on this like feminist platform, first female president, all of these things. But a lot of women, you know, on the left were actually criticizing her. You know, she supported a coup in Honduras that the feminists of Honduras were vehemently opposed to because the new regime was going to take away women's rights, right? So how can you stand on this platform that's pro-women when really you probably mean maybe pro-American women, pro-rich white women, pro-women of a certain, you know, class and status and um, kind of not being aware of the different ways that like your positions can be exclusionary um, is I think one of the major sticking points like of feminism and of creating really strong female coalitions because it's always, um, you know, well, I'm trying to do this and it's, I'm, you're not doing enough. Right. And, and that is a battle that is very difficult, but is one that, you know, a, a lot of times should be had. Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives. The theme of this week's show is women. Joining me in conversation are Diana Martinez, Ashley Spivey and Megan Hunt. 
you've talked a little bit about the impossibility of, of simply creating a category called woman or womanhood or talking about women without recognizing that there are many, many ways that uh, that identity, however that is, is divided, has to reflect all the other things that make up our lives. And actually one thing you say, for example, is that you see your womanhood through your blackness. And I think maybe we all see ourselves in, in uh, different ways, which makes me want to then ask about how female identity is crafted internally and how much of that is crafted externally uh, through culture and society. And to do that, I just want to read a little bit from your Atlantic article. So you, uh, Dana, you authored an article published in the uh, June, June 7th edition, June 7th edition of The Atlantic called The Fitful Evolution of Wonder Woman's Look. And in it, you say that Wonder Woman's body has been a canvas upon which authors, artists, and audiences have negotiated women's shifting gender roles and beauty standards from the 1940s through today. Tracing how Wonder Woman's appearance has evolved in the comics and film and TV adaptations reveals the way her creators tried to respond to anxieties about women's independence. In playing with her proportions, skin color, and costumes, the architects of Wonder Woman's image over time have both empowered and objectified her, though the line between the two is often blurry. So maybe use Wonder Woman as um, this metaphor for how um, the, you know, the identity of women has been crafted. You know, that this article was kind of timed with the release of the film, right? But it, I think, is also trying to get at something um, larger in culture and that the way that we talk about women, um, especially women's bodies, whether they're fictional or celebrities or politicians or real, um, all signal these anxieties that we have about women. Um, and like Wonder Woman, for example, in the 1990s became this really like crazily curvaceous figure. And in the article, I say kind of in response to this heroin chic trend started by Kate Moss of these kind of gaunt figures um, who were sexual, yet also asexual and um, kind of allied with drug culture and eating disorders. And and so to grapple with that, um, Wonder Woman becomes this like overly a womanized, overly voluptuous figure. But that that pivoting, right, is really to just critique uh, the ways that that heroin chic body really messed with the ideals about womanhood, right? How can you have a body that is still associated with sexuality yet, um, you know, not have breasts or, you know, not have that long flowing hair of Cindy Crawford and the this kind of supermodel glamazons of the 1980s, Um but even if we're like pivoting away from like Wonder Woman, like the way that we talk about like Serena Williams, for instance, and, you know, she her muscles are too big. Right. It's never about Serena Williams's muscles. It's about all of those things that her muscles represent. And unfortunately, that's tied with racism and this much longer history about associating the black body with hard labor and physical labor. Right. And then you go even further to this kind of like pseudoscience of phrenology that says that certain bodies are. Um, more capable of of uh, like being active and virile than others. It's never just about her muscles. And when we talk about like Wonder Woman, right, even though she's fictional, when we say like, oh, she's, you know, not wearing enough clothes or like she's too thin or she's too voluptuous at that time, like that is signaling how we think about women. And so 
media representations are really important, but like the way we talk about Hillary Clinton, the way we talk about Kim Kardashian, they all signal these anxieties about women in power, how women use their sexuality, how uh, women outwardly portray their ambition, um, which is something always thrown at Hillary Clinton and also like Taylor Swift, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and so Wonder Woman is really important in the way that she's a really easy character to kind of bear out how those conversations happen in culture. I really like your point about how when you portray a woman, you're also portraying like not that. Like you're you're calling to mind, you're suggesting um, not that. And it does betray like the anxieties and the insecurities that not that that I don't think women necessarily have, but that men have about women yeah. and the way they want to consume women and their portrayal and their bodies. So when I think about what's expected, one of how I should look after I have kids or while I have kids or before, what that should look like. Um, And then it's like, so then again, I think that was coupled in her blackness. So in the black community, there's ideas of what women should look like. Then there's even another layer of that black men and women want to look more like white women because of the ideas associated with being a white woman. So do you wear a long flowy weave? Do you wear your hair straight? Do you not wear? I mean, so it's all of these complexities and you're so right. It's like, it's never about what they say it's about and it's so entrenched in us and it's so complex that sometimes you don't even know where to start and um, dissecting it to better understand it and all those dynamics and it's tough then as you as an individual contributor to navigate right like how do you navigate all of these things and then find out what is your truth and what narrative do you want to own You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. cultural representation, social representations and stereotypes being thrown at you, how do you craft that sense of autonomy and sense of awareness about how you want to present yourself, how you want your children to learn how to present themselves 
away from these stereotypical images? I mean, that's tough. I think if people knew, we would be in a really different place. And so I think it's always evolving and changing. There's not a right answer. Um, you have to find what feels comfortable for you and be authentic to yourself. But you also have to be realistic. One of the reasons why I find like Wonder Woman so interesting is because of that relationship to her body. And I think like as a woman, um, like I have like kind of a fraught relationship with my own body, with the way that it looks, the way that I think it's supposed to look. And I think like across across lines, right? Across whether you're a woman of color, you know, whether you're a trans woman, I think the experience of a woman's body as being like a weapon that's always used against her, um, either like actually violently or just like culturally by the way that it looks and the way that we deploy um, like beauty standards um, is something that all women can relate to because our bodies are always political and politicized. I've always struggled a lot with my you know, who I am, like that kind of thing, because I think my identities have always been very relational. When I think about who I am, I think about so-and-so's wife. I think about so-and-so's girlfriend. I think about so-and-so's daughter, Alice's mother, you know, so-and-so's friend, business partner. And because I, my tendency is always to um, put others' needs before my own. And I think that's something a lot of women absolutely relate to, but I've, you know, I went through a divorce about five years ago and you say it like that. It's like, okay, that was a really long time ago, but it was still like a very significant effect event in my life. And so ever since then, I feel like I've spent a lot of time just being like, you know, Megan, you cannot only identify with yourself in terms of your relationships to other people. And you have to really figure out what it is that drives you. And I'm, an entrepreneur. I'm a activist. I'm a very political person. I'm a writer. Um, but still I'm just describing things I like to do. I'm not really describing who I am. And so that's something that I, I continue to struggle with. And the more society tells me who I am, I fall into the trap of listening. Mm -hmm. And I, I try to kind of, um, lately more so than ever avoid that trap. You know, I think for me, like, you know, trying to accept my body, like part of me is like, am I just like being influenced by all these like Instagram girls who are like, you right. know, curvy is beautiful now, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, is, right. is that what's oh, happening? That's, that's the new thing. Yeah. Right? If that's a new thing, is that what's like influencing me or is that actually a desire that exactly. I have? And I think one of the interesting things is that like, I, you know, talk to my boyfriend all the time and I feel like he doesn't live with this, um, a, like self-judgment the way that I do, probably just because we're different people, but also like, you know, he doesn't, you know, have this relationship with like other things of like, are they trying to manipulate me? Are they trying to get me to do something or be someone that I'm not?
Um, what I want to ask you uh, as we draw the show to a conclusion is what do you want to say about this topic? What has not been said or what has been discussed so far just over the last hour that has spurred something in you that you, you just want to get out there? So I think the last idea or what I would like to leave from this conversation with is that it's all and it's nothing, right? That really I want anyone listening to feel empowered to own whatever narrative they have, to truly take time to interrogate their own identities and to understand those, to understand their worldview and then the systems around them and create the space that they need to be authentic, to be who they are and to be happy. We, I think, and especially when you work in this kind of space, when you're trying to create change um, for all of us that do this work, I think it's really exhausting and we forget about ourselves and what's important to us and what we need. And so really just taking the time to say we as women, however we define and we as whatever else that we identify with, like we're going to be happy in that. We're going to understand what that means to us. We're going to own that narrative and we're just going to do it. The things that are coming to mind to me are is advice for men. And I really do not want to go out on that note, actually. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't I don't want to center it around men. Well, I, well, I think one of the things that came out of this conversation that I've been thinking about a lot myself is, um, I know for, for me being a woman is always tied to like my feminism and how I define that for myself. Um, and I think being like broader in scope as to what that encompasses. And I think as, you know, Ashley pointed out like earlier, um, there are a lot of variations of the feminist movement that are not grounded in history or kind of have no, um, real understanding about what feminism is supposed to do. And I think one of the things that is really dangerous is when, um, you know, you have these really easy slogans to attach to a kind of feminism or like Beyonce says she's feminist or Lena Dunham and then everyone else is because that's not actually what it is, right? So just proclaiming that you're a pro-woman or that you're a feminist is not enough. Um, there are so many other things that need to be done, especially at this moment in history with our political situation um, that just don't allow us to only hang on to those superficial things. And so I've really been trying to think of ways that feminism is not just defined as being, you know, not like anti-male, but, you know, like kind of anti-patriarchy, but it's also defined by positive progress. So, um, you know, income equality for uh, women of color, for men of color, for just everyone across the board, um, you know, access to universal health care, like all of these things that uh, create a society that will in turn try to elevate women because when you have the basic things that you need, it doesn't feel like, you know, one group is threatening the other one. And so that, I don't know, that's just kind of what I've been struggling with myself is how to, how to define an actually like deep feminism that is politically invested and, and moving towards something positive. And especially in these areas in society where um, there is economic struggle or whatever, it's always women and women of color who are most affected by that and, and single mothers and on down the line of underrepresented groups. Um, so I guess, I guess it's just been great listening to both of you. And yeah, it's nice to get to know both of you a little bit more too. Um, 
I had a thought and I just lost it. I'm really just like not feeling on point right now. But what does this mean for you, right? Like if, you know, as you're kind of starting this new part of your life with mm-hmm. like politics. So like, what does that look being like on now? point all the time <laughs> and like not being on point for like 30 minutes of your life. Yeah. It's just like, it's going through your head. Like this is going to be the thing that, that crushes me. Mm-hmm. This is going to be the time where like, nobody will forgive me for not saying like the most intelligent thing on earth. And mm-hmm. it's what you said earlier about everyone having to be wonder woman. It's like, mm-hmm. we didn't mention this on the show, but like my seven year olds with me today because it's summer and that's just how it is, you know, and mm-hmm. I've got someone at the store filling my shift. And it's just like, um, you know, grace, I feel like as a woman, uh-huh. it's hard. And with all your identities, it's like you do, you have to always perform, not just at the expectation but over you know you always have to do those things but we are giving you grace well, here I wanna, so I want to tell you both that that really just having the conversation and taking the breath from a very busy day to connect with two people who are so impressive to me really you know um so yeah, I guess I don't want to leave with any advice to men or anything like that, but just in praise of women who have influenced me and who, um, and I guess that, I guess what I would say to listeners is just to look at the places in your life where you're comfortable and ask yourself why that is. And maybe where other people are not comfortable in the same way that you are and why that is and who you can listen to and who you can talk to and who you can ask questions of to help alleviate that for them. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Ashley Spivey, Megan Hunt, and Diana Martinez. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Stuart. Yes, thank you. This was great. Thanks. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalamar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.